You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. The Coptic Orthodox Church is one of the family known as the Oriental Orthodox Churches, as distinct from the Eastern Orthodox. The Oriental Orthodox include the Copts, the Syrians, the Ethiopians, the Eritreans, and the Indians. The Eastern Orthodox include the Greeks, the Russians, the Serbians, and so on. The essential distinction between those two families relates to the Council of Chalcedon in 351. The Oriental Orthodox Churches are not accepted as an ecumenical council. The Eastern Orthodox do. The Eastern Orthodox generally uh, claim that the Copts are monophysites, that is, they believe in the heresy of the one nature of Jesus Christ. The Copts vigorously deny that. Uh, and it is a fight that has gone on for a very long time. There now seems to be agreement between the leaders of the Eastern and Oriental Churches that the heresy never really existed. So we're moving happily towards something that might vaguely look like uh, union. The Copts are the original Christians of Egypt, and they are the descendants of the pharaohs, as distinct from the Arabs who subsequently invaded the land. And they traditionally trace the origins of their church to the ministry of St. Mark in the years immediately after the resurrection. There's clear evidence that Christianity spread widely in Egypt in the 1st and 2nd centuries. Various scriptural um, manuscripts have been found, including a fragment of the Gospel of St. John, written in Coptic and dating to around the year 200. Fortunately, uh, last year I had the opportunity of seeing it. It's in the uh, Rylands Library in Dublin. So, a Coptic church is a rather, for most Western eyes, a rather exotic-looking place. In normal times, that's uh, what is known as the royal doors, which is a rather odd term in Coptic because there are no doors. The uh, royal doors are closed with a red curtain outside the liturgy, but unlike most Orthodox traditions, during the liturgy proper, the doors are open. Outside the celebration of the Divine Liturgy, the altar in a Coptic church is normally veiled. The red veil is normally used throughout most of the year. The white veil is used at Easter time. And when the veil is removed, a number of rather curious things, I particularly like this old photograph of a 19th, early 20th century Coptic altar, which is characteristically in a state of shambles. If you looked at the Coptic altar once it was unveiled, you'd notice a number of things that are unusual. The first of these is the Ark. The Ark is a wooden box. There's an example there of an old one and of two modern ones. And it's often assumed to be a Roman Catholic tabernacle equivalent in which the sacrament is reserved. It isn't anything of the sort. Nothing is reserved in the Ark. Well, that's not strictly true. The sacrament is not reserved in the Ark. The Ark is, as the photo photograph in the top right shows, used to hold the chalice during the liturgy. It's simply a chalice holder. Its origins are really not clearly understood, although they're very ancient. If you were looking at the altar, one thing you wouldn't see, because it would be covered in altar cloths, is the altar board. The altar board is an elaborately decorated wooden slab which is used as effectively an altar stone. It's made of timber. There are some rare examples in marble. On one end of the altar board stands the ark, and on the other end stands the pattern. It's the equivalent, roughly, of the Eastern Orthodox Antimensian, that is a cloth without which the Eucharist can't be celebrated. Rome originally had a tradition of portable altar stones, but that now seems long to have died. 
Another somewhat unusual object that you would notice on the altar, perhaps, is what appears to be a bundle of clothes wrapped in a tablecloth. And this often mystifies people, and they're slightly more mystified because when the veil is removed from the altar, this bundle is there, and then very quickly it disappears. And if you asked uh, the average Coptic priest about it, you would get a very vague and unsatisfactory answer. But it is, in fact, something quite mysterious. If you would look in vain in any of the Coptic service books or descriptions of Coptic liturgies or ceremonies, to find any reference to it. It's simply not referred to anywhere, to my knowledge. Some years ago, when I was serving in a Coptic parish priest in Sydney, I was doing a Sunday school class for some 11 and 12-year-olds, and I decided I'd try and help them familiarize themselves with the inside of the church. So they wanted to know about the altar. So perhaps wickedly, I opened the curtains so they could see the altar, and I removed the veil off the altar so they could see the altar, things which I should not have done. And I heard them saying, you ask him, no, you ask him, no, you ask him. And I said, finally, what is it you want to ask me? And they said, are we allowed to? And I said, yes, what is it you want to know? And they said, what's that bundle of stuff on the altar? And so I explained it to them. Uh, and indeed, I brought the bundle down out of the sanctuary, again, not something that should have been done, and put it on a table in front of them, and I unpacked it. The bundle, in fact, is a cloth containing all the utensils, veils, and vessels that are used in celebrating the liturgy. It's tied up in a particular ritual way involving certain numbers of knots, and when it is unwrapped, it's un unwrapped at the beginning of the liturgy, but most people wouldn't see the unwrapping because the priest will be standing in front of it. He has to untie the two sets of knots in a particular order with particular ritual and then open up the bundle, and in it he will find a large cloth, which is known as the prosperine, which is used to cover the entire altar when the altar is again set up for the liturgy. And he'll also have about <coughs> somewhere between 15 and 20 small mats, uh, usually square, and a couple, with a couple of them around. The Coptic liturgy is celebrated on an altar which has an altar cloth on it, actually has sets of altar cloths on it. But the liturgy proper is celebrated on a complicated mosaic of small mats. They're normally about nine inches to a foot square. And they have to be laid on the altar in a particular order and in a particular way. And they also have to hang, some of them have to hang down in front of the altar. And one of the skills that a new priest will have to quickly acquire is how to place mats hanging down on the altar so that the mats on top of them keep them hanging down in front of the altar without falling. It's a sign of a very amateur celebrant to have any mats drop off during the course of the liturgy. The bundle will also contain the chalice, the pattern, the star, and the spoon, which are the essential instruments of the liturgy. And so these will be unpacked. Each one will be wrapped in its own particular cloth. And because each of the instruments has been consecrated by a bishop using chrism or myron, they may not be touched by anyone who is not either a bishop, a priest, or a full deacon. If anyone else has to touch it, sometimes altar servers may have to touch them. The server has to find cloths to cover his hands before touching them, in the same way that he is clearly not able to touch the ark. 
As I was describing this to these kids, who were really quite disappointed because they assumed that, that there must be something incredibly secret, perhaps even erotic, inside the bag <laughs> if it was kept concealed in such a way, I noticed that a couple of, of the older men and one of the <coughs> were watching me. And after the task was over and I'd retied the bundle using the correct ritual, ritual and placed it back on the altar, which I then reveiled appropriately, I was severely reprimanded. The priest pointed out to me that those are things that are only supposed to be known by priests. That is, the contents of the bundle and how it's tied up and how it's untied is not something that should be shown to anyone who isn't a priest. This might seem rather strange, but it's part of the Coptic tradition that the rituals of the liturgy and of the sacraments, as opposed to the words, so you can in fact, if you look at this volume, you can see most of the words that are said during the liturgy. I'll mention in a little while some that you won't find in there. The ritual, that is what is done as opposed to what is said, is not written down. It should not be written down. There are a few people who have written it down, but it's not supposed to be written down because it is regarded as too sacred to be made accessible to people who are not priests or bishops. The Coptic Church holds that the teachings about the rituals of the sacraments and other services were transmitted orally by the Lord to the apostles and disciples and were then transmitted orally by them to their successors and so on down throughout the ages. Even when the liturgy came to be written down, the earliest versions of it are in note form. That is, they are not complete. It's very clear that elements have been left out. And certainly there was no ceremonial instruction at all. Even some contemporary liturgical texts published by the Coptic Church do not contain all the words that are spoken, and they certainly do not contain any of the ceremonial instructions. Indeed, there was a set of prayers that must be said by the celebrant, in liturgy, that are not found in most modern versions of the Coptic liturgy, and which were originally not found in any of them, but were included in a volume with the exotic name, The Book of Secret Prayers, which was only accessible to priests and bishops. Um, Father Tedros El Bakomi says of the traditional church teaching, the church's rituals have been defined and practiced by tradition within the church itself, a tradition which has been passed down from the holy apostles who received it at the hands of our Lord himself. This tradition has been thoroughly passed down from one generation to another. Thus, the rituals of the church have a direct relationship to the apostolic fathers from the first centuries of Christianity. We know from the four Gospels that our Lord spent about three and a half years teaching his twelve disciples and apostles everything and also from the book of Acts, that the Lord, after his holy resurrection, spent 40 days appearing to his holy apostles, informing them about all that concerns the edification of the church. And so, the tradition is that the liturgy, while the liturgy was eventually printed, the ceremonial instructions were never printed. They were taught in, by the Lord in a period of 40 days to his apostles and successors. If we look, for example, at one of the earliest of the, of the Egyptian liturgies, the liturgy of St. Serapion, which dates to around about the 4th century, it's a very brief liturgy. It would be, be hard-pressed to take much more than half an hour to celebrate it. 
it fairly clearly has bits missing, not missing in the sense that they have been taken out, but that they were never put in. And it contains effectively no ceremonial instruction. So there's virtually no instruction about what the priest does or doesn't do with anything. Various early fathers made reference to this notion of a secret tradition, which came to be known among scholars as the disciplina arcani, or secret discipline. That is, that there were things that were not said, things that were not told, things that were not shown to people who were not believers. And not even that, but to people who were not sufficient believers. Because, as most of you would know, in the early church, the process of becoming a Christian was a long and tedious one. Uh, you didn't turn up on Sunday and get baptized. It was a pr long process of being a catechumen and receiving various instructions and then more instructions and so on. What is generally known of the discipline Arcani is that it, the immediate object of the mystery was not dogma and sacramental words, but the elements and the ritual performance. So that it was not so much what the priest said as to what the priest did that was to be kept secret. And the desire, of course, was to ensure that those who were not worthy didn't have access to this information. It essentially related to the celebration of the Eucharist and to baptism. And indeed, in the Coptic tradition still, it is essentially relating to the baptism, to baptism and the celebration of the Eucharist, that secret teachings exist with, with regard to the sacraments. The secret tradition is in part based on scriptural teachings. Give not that which is holy to dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest perhaps they trample them under their feet, and turning upon you, they tear you. As is reported in Matthew 7, 6. Well, the practice in apostolic times is suggested by St. Paul's statement that he fed the Corinthians as little ones in Christ, giving them milk to drink, not meat because they were not yet able to bear it. This is echoed in Hebrews, where the same illustration is used, and it is written that solid food is for the perfect, for them who by custom have their senses exercised to the discerning of good and evil. So there is a very ancient tradition, going back to the very origins of Christianity, of secret tradition. Most scholars concluded that the secret tradition can be traced back to the very beginning of Christianity, but that it does not appear to have been carried out with such strictness in the earlier centuries as it was immediately after the persecutions began. This may be due in part to the absence of detailed information with regard to the earlier period, but it's probable enough that the discipline was growing more and more strict throughout the second and third centuries on account of the pressure of persecution, and that when the persecution was at last relaxed, the need for reserve was felt at first while the church was still surrounded by hostile pagans to be increased rather than diminished. Likewise, most scholars conclude that after the 5th or 6th century, when Christianity was thoroughly established and secure, the need for such a discipline was no longer felt and it passed rapidly away. This would appear to be the case in almost all areas of Christianity except Coptic Egypt. In Coptic Egypt, the tradition of secrecy did not pass away, and indeed it continued and became somewhat stricter after the Islamic invasions. The training of Coptic priests in ancient times was the responsibility of the bishop. There are various ancient texts which prescribe some of the knowledge required, specifically knowledge of the office of priest, 
and particularly the ritual requirements of the office. That most priests were illiterate, or later illiterate in the Coptic language, presupposed that most of the training was done by oral instruction and demonstration, which had to be memorized and replicated to the, to the satisfaction of the bishop or the mentor appointed by him. Traditionally, the candidate for ordination was examined both orally and in terms of liturgical practice prior to ordination. But the tradition then developed that an unordained person was not worthy to have this knowledge, and accordingly it stopped being given to candidates for ordination and was given after ordination to those who'd been ordained to be priests. Following ordination, a Coptic Orthodox priest is not permitted to celebrate the divine liturgy or administer any of the sacraments until he has completed a period of instruction in the unwritten and secret tradition, which is referred to as the 40 days. Although it may be longer than 40 days, I suppose in the case of rather dim priests, <laughs> or these days it's often very much shortened, particularly where priests uh, may go to Egypt to do the 40 days from Australia or the United States. They will often not spend 40 days doing it. At the conclusion of the 40 days, um, and subject to the new priest satisfying the senior monk priest who is his instructor that he is competent of, and thereafter and can celebrate the sacraments appropriately. So, what doing it? He will undergo what is known as the rite of receiving the sacrament, which in an interesting sort of way is a rite completing the priestly ordination. Because although a priest is ordained by priestly ordination, <coughs> He can't function as a priest until he's undergone the rite of receiving the sacrament. And thereafter, he can administer all the sacraments <coughs> of the church. The 40 days obviously refers to a number of biblical references, Moses being on the mountain, uh, Jesus fasting, and Jesus teaching the apostles. The rite of receiving the sacrament requires that the new priest, having been instructed and examined and tested, celebrates the divine liturgy on two consecutive mornings under the watchful gaze of his teacher. This is, these are two examinations. Assuming he passes, if his practice is deemed satisfactory, he then celebrates the liturgy alone again on the third morning. During that liturgy, he is given a loaf of Eucharistic bread wrapped in a white veil and is taken on a threefold procession three times around the altar and then three times around the church and then three times again around the altar, holding the loaf of bread aloft and accompanied by his teacher, other priests, the deacons and the choir. And then, having received the sacrament, he can now celebrate the Eucharist and the other sacraments of the church. The rite of receiving the sacrament would normally never have been seen outside a monastery in Egypt, although I underwent it in Sydney in the church in which I had undergone the 40 days. Knowledge of the ancient secret tradition has gradually diminished in the modern Coptic church with the loss of older monk priests fully instructed in it and able to transmit it. I was trained in the Coptic liturgical tradition by the former abbot of Dyer Amber Bakum, the monastery of St. Bakomius, on the edge of the desert near Edfu in Upper Egypt, one of the most fervently traditional and conservative monasteries in the Coptic Orthodox tradition. I was the first non-Egyptian to be given permission by His Holiness Pope Shenouda to undertake the traditional 40 days instruction after ordination as a priest. 
I carefully recorded the instructions I received, something that I was encouraged to do, but which would traditionally have been absolutely forbidden. And I've been undertaking research in the secret tradition since my ordination in 1994. My publication of the secret tradition regarding the extraordinarily complex and complicated ritual of the fraction in the Coptic liturgy had provoked considerable criticism from traditionalist priests who objected to such secret and sacred priestly knowledge being made public. In attempting to describe the Coptic ritual, a number of difficulties arise, not the least of which is the lack of a definitive account of the ceremonial of the Coptic rite in English, or indeed probably even in Arabic or Coptic. It's simply never been written down. There are a number of works, particularly from the 14th century, with such exotic titles as The Lamp of Darkness for the Explanation of the Service and The Precious Jewel of Ecclesiastical Science, which contain some information about the, trans the, the ritual and its ceremonial. The Coptic Rite developed in widely different forms, and it appears to have been more or less standardized in around about the 15th and 16th centuries. Whereas in the West, relatively prescriptive rubrics or ritual instructions exist in most liturgies, and they can be read, so if you get a copy of the Roman Catholic Mass, it's easy to find a, a definitive and authorized version of the rubrics. No such thing exists, and I suspect no such thing ever has existed in regard to the Coptic liturgy. Even in regard to the text of the liturgy, it's not altogether clear, even in Coptic, that there is an official version, and there certainly is no official version in English. There are multiple versions in English which go back to 1604. The earliest translation was in 1604 into Latin, and there have been multiple translations into English. I've only listed the more ancient ones there. And yet, the rubrics themselves are absolutely essential to understand the liturgy. Indeed, one commentator, a Coptic bishop, said, every motion and or action during the worship, every action in and out of the Apostolic Orthodox Church carries with it high spiritual meaning, some of which may not be instantly apparent to everyone. So the question is, how would you find out what the secret ritual tradition was if you were not instructed in it? Well, some people have attempted to do that by watching the liturgy in practice. And this is not necessarily terribly helpful. People have also sought to look at the liturgical books. Uh, for those who have come from a liturgical tradition in which you have a book which you use for liturgy, orthodoxy is a virtually confusing area generally. Orthodox churches generally do not have a single volume that is used for the liturgy. They have multiple volumes. In fact, I was asked to um, sing Slavonic Vespers some months ago, and I said that I'm happy to try it if you bring me the service book, and the person who asked me to do it went away and came back with eight books, each of them marked in separate ways. So unfortunately, <coughs> he being a skilled deacon, simply moved me from book to book and simply pointed at what I needed to do or say. But because there is simply nothing that could be a single version of Orthodox Vespers. The Coptic <coughs> books include the Samadhiya, which contains the verses of the symbols and various hymns, 
the Diphna, which contains accounts of the saints, the Book of Contemplations, which contains again more accounts of the saints, the Horologion, which is the Coptic Book of Hours, um, generally referred to by its Coptic title, which is the Agbeya, the Eucologion, which contains the text of the Eucharist and the raising of morning and evening incense, the Book of Secret Prayers, insofar as that's still used. There's a large volume of a service book for deacons. There's a huge multiple volume lectionary, which is known as the Tamaros, which exists in forms in five or six or seven volumes for different seasons of the year. There's the Synaxarian, which is what in most Orthodox churches would be known as the Martyrology. It's an account of the lives of the saints. There's the Myanmar, which is another version of the Synaxarian. There's a book of homilies, which claim to be sermons written by ancient church fathers, which they're almost certainly not. And there are five or six volumes of the Samadhiya, which are essentially hymns for chanting during the liturgy. So at any given service, you would effectively be required to have all of those available. Fortunately, in most Orthodox liturgies, the role of the deacon is far more important than that of the priest. And certainly in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and particularly the Russian tradition, a priest is essentially an actor subject to constant direction by the deacon. The deacon will in fact instruct the priest in what to do and point to what he has to say, and it's the deacon's responsibility to sort out all these books. Unfortunately, in the Coptic tradition, the role of the full deacon has effectively died, and it died out around the beginning of this century. The Copts refer to deacons, but what they're actually referring to are servers or subdeacons or readers or cantors who have no uh, sacramental role at all. They're not, for example, permitted to handle consecrated vessels. They're not supposed to, although they all do wear stoles of various sorts. And so we have this interesting version of a whole series of quite complicated texts. As I said to you, you might go to look at some attempts where people have tried to write about the secret traditions. Otto Burmeister published two works in which he managed to get some of the material essentially by watching and transcribing what priests did. Bishop Mateos is the first Copt ever to have written about the secret tradition, but even in his volume, which is available electronically for any of you who want to look at it, and I've given you the reference on the handout, is not complete. He certainly leaves large sections out. I've written on the fraction in the Coptic Orthodox Liturgy, which is also available electronically, and I've given you the reference there. And I've also published a work on these ritual traditions for the Office of Morning and Evening Prayer. Throughout the liturgy, a priest is supposed to be continually praying. And indeed, if a priest said all the prayers prescribed for the liturgy, a priest would have no time to do anything. In fact, Bishop Mateus says this, from the time the priest enters the church, his continuous prayers begin, some spoken aloud, but many of which are prayed in silence. In this way, the priest is kept busy in prayer at every moment, lest his mind should wander to earthly matters. Uh, I hasten to point out that in contemporary practice, many priests claim to recite the secret prayers absolutely silently and secretly, and in my view, clearly are not doing so, because they 
looking with a speed that even I can't accomplish in speed reading. And they will engage in conversations and discussions and even hear confessions during a liturgy. Strictly speaking, this would be absolutely deleted. The process of teaching the secret tradition would normally be done by a priest, a senior monk priest, being given responsibility for taking on a new priest. In some cases where there are numbers of priests who have been ordained, it might be that one monk priest transmits the tradition to a number of priests. But the tradition strictly was one-on-one, -on -one, teacher, pupil. And they would spend many days, probably 40, together, beginning in the morning and continuing through the night. And the priest-teacher would follow the liturgical structure of the liturgy in teaching the disciple. The Coptic liturgy, that is the Eucharist, cannot be celebrated by itself. It has to be celebrated in the context of a sequence of other services. And it, that, that begins with the uh, service on the evening before, so that if I was to celebrate the liturgy tomorrow morning, at some stage this evening, preferably around about 6 o'clock, because the liturgical day begins at sunrise, I would have to celebrate a service which is referred to as the raising of, morning, of, the raising of evening incense. In some mistranslations, this is referred to as evensong or even vespers. It's certainly neither of them. There is a Coptic rite of vespers. The raising of evening incense is more correctly referred to as the offering or sacrifice of evening incense. Because in the service, incense is not used for the purposes of perfume or fumigation. It is actually offered as a sacrifice, referring back to the Old Testament tradition of the incense offering. So the priest is offering incense. He is not simply sensing things. Indeed, he does sense things, but the incense is actually offered. I would then have to recite the hours um, that follow on from evening incense. If I was a very devout priest, I would stay up till midnight when I would recite a midnight office. Most priests recite the midnight office well before midnight or do so in the early morning. I would then have to rise early in the morning and say the remaining hours and then offer the service of the raising or offering of morning incense, which is virtually identical to evening incense but with variant prayers. Only then can I celebrate the liturgy. So the liturgy can't be celebrated in a standalone form. It has to be celebrated in this whole context. <coughs> and indeed, um, morning and evening incense can't really, there are some odd exceptions throughout the year, can't be, can't be celebrated without the liturgy following. So um, people have occasionally asked me if I would raise evening incense on an evening when I wasn't celebrating the liturgy on the following morning, and my answer has to be no. It's, it is not an evening service, as for example Vespers would be. It is an integral part of the Eucharistic liturgical cycle. The, the new priest will of course attend the liturgy endlessly as celebrated by his mentor. So every day he will attend the liturgy celebrated by his teacher who will instruct him throughout the liturgy. And gradually, as his competence is assumed to be increasing, the new priest will be given little bits of the liturgy to do. Initially, only the liturgy of the catechumens, so that any, everything up to the anaphora. He'll be trained then in several 
quite complicated aspects of the Coptic liturgy. <coughs> I don't know why I keep saying particularly complex aspects. The Coptic liturgy as a whole is a liturgical, um, I'm going to say nightmare, but that's a nasty thing to say, an extraordinarily complicated rite. So there are three particular rites in the liturgy in which the new priest has to be instructed. The first is the rite of the prothesis. That is preparing the bread and wine for the liturgy. In the Coptic rite, this is done outside the sanctuary, and it's done before the liturgy proper begins. The priest chooses firstly a lamb, that is a loaf of bread, from an even number of other loaves. So the priest will be presented with three, five, nine, eleven <coughs> loaves. The priest then has to examine each one of the loaves very carefully, and there are very clear rules about what he's examining them for. And then he has to compare each loaf with every other loaf. So there's a long process of taking one and holding it to another and choosing between the two of them and then putting the rejected one down and picking up another one. And so the priest has to be instructed in what to look for and how to do this. The lamb then has to, the lamb, which is the name given to the bread that will be used for the Eucharist, is then baptized and anointed, wrapped in a white cloth and carried in procession with the wine and the water being carried by deacons into the sanctuary and around the altar several times. This is the equivalent to, although quite different from, the Byzantine Great Entrance. And unlike the Byzantine Rite, the Lamb is not divided at any time up until the fraction after the consecration. And indeed, if the Lamb was broken in any way, it would not be acceptable. Um, my uh, mentor was such a perfectionist that on one occasion when he was celebrating the liturgy, he was presented with a basket of seven breads, and he rejected them all. The liturgy had to go on hold while people rushed away and baked new loaves. He took the view that not one of them was acceptable. I don't know that many priests would be that specific. The um, prosper is a great deal larger than a Byzantine prosper. Is that yes, correct? Yes, larger and flatter. Uh -huh. It's, it's um, leavened bread, of course, but it's larger and flatter. The size varies. Uh, I've certainly I've had celebrated some liturgies where we knew there were going to be very few people, and so they baked ones that were about you know, perhaps three or four inches in diameter. I've attended papal liturgies where there were going to be thousands of people where I've seen a prosper like that. Um, and remembering that there is only one, it must contain sufficient for all the people to receive communion. Uh, and it must all be consumed. Again, I have celebrated the liturgy on one notable occasion when I was assured there were going to be a couple of hundred people in the church. So large prosper will bake. And um, in the Coptic tradition, wine is poured into the chalice out of a cruet. But the cruet must be completely empty, which is why churches have cruets in various sizes. You can't leave any wine in the cruet. And so they used one of the larger cruets. As the liturgy proceeded, like many Orthodox, the Copts are not noted for atten attending church from the beginning. People appear. 
And every time I turn around to bless the people, I was becoming more and more anxious because they were not appearing. <laughs> and when we came to the communion, we had a very large body, a chalice full of wine, and very few people to consume it. And so the deacons consumed some of it. I consumed the bulk of it and then decided I couldn't drive for a while until the... Uh, <laughs> I don't know that the police would have let me off on the grounds that I hadn't drunk wine, I had drunk blood. <laughs> the priest must then be instructed in the secret rituals of the consecration. That is, what actions are done to consecrate the body and the blood. The chalice is in the ark, so the priest doesn't in fact hold it in his hands. He lifts it up by the rim. He does a number of very specific ritual blessings over both the bread and the wine, and then prays the prayer, which is what you're seeing, the two priests there um, kneeling. He says the epiclesis, that is the invocation of the Holy Spirit, which is the point at which Orthodox believe the bread becomes the body and the wine becomes the blood. So he must be able to do that perfectly. The next particular challenge Sorry, sorry, can we get it back up a slide? I apologize. Um, for those of us not familiar with Coptic headgear, uh, ah. so there's three examples there or two? No, there are two. Yes, I apologize uh, for the headgear. Uh, there are three forms of headwear worn by priests, although these days there are only two. A priest who is a monk will wear the white kamalavka or cowl, which you can see on the right. Mm -hmm. A priest who is married will, will wear a headwear called a talazan, which you see in the other two slides, which looks very much like a Western mitre. The difference, as you may be able to see in the slide on the left, instead of lappets or fanons, two little strips down the back, the talazan has a strip of fabric the same width as the talazan, which hangs right the way down to the ankles. Mm -hmm. It's also got a single point, hasn't it? A, yeah. single, a single point, yes, it's not divided. Right. I was just noticing that picture on the, the left, the, the, the posture with the bread, one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, especially if we're doing Western Rite-style liturgies that I, you know, instruct our priests to do as a part of, and, and for me, I'm a words of institution kind of guy. Um, you know, it's just interesting that you know it's the great schism within the AJC. Part right of now. part of the idea, part of the idea of the anamnesis, you know, that recollection is that you know uh, um, you're also recalling that for the elements itself. You know, you know where we speak to the elements directly. Remember, mm -hmm. essentially, remember you are divine. Yes. By saying by saying those words, and I just thought that you know that was the first thing I thought of mm. when I saw the picture on the left, which mm -hmm. is quite beautiful. And having a chat with the, with the lamb. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the third piece of headwear, which is now virtually unknown, uh, except when I'm around because I wear it. <laughs> so I said yeah. for the monastic priest, he will wear uh, in celebrating the liturgy, he will wear a white version of the black cowl known as the Kamalavka, which he would wear normally. So that monks wear the Kamalavka all the time. Yeah. It's changed to a white one, and monks need to develop great skills in doing this because it's regarded as entirely unacceptable that a monk's head would ever be seen. 
And so he will have his black one on, put the white one over the top of it and miraculously zip the black one out from underneath without his hair being seen. The third head piece of headwear is known as the shamla, and there really is no English translation. It is probably most easily thought of as like a Jewish prayer shawl. It is a fabric about so long and so wide, in white, embroidered with crosses, which is worn over the head with the epitrochelion or stole over it, so that it creates the effect of a cowl. The shamla was the traditional headwear. Traditionally, monks could not be priests. This is an ancient Christian tradition that the monastic life precluded the priestly life because, by definition, a monk couldn't perform a priestly ministry and the monk <coughs> was in a monastery. And then gradually, monks, a monk or two might be ordained to serve the monastery, but the tradition was, and very strongly held in the Coptic Church ancient, anciently, that priests can't be monks and monks can't be priests. You choose one, you choose the other. But um, in modern times, certainly many monks are priests and many monk priests are monks. So initially, you would only have had married, you would have had married priests wearing the telezone. You would have had unmarried priests. And the unmarried priest wore the shamla. So the shamla is a headgear for an unmarried priest. Now, the unmarried priest is expected to be celibate, although there are no vows to that effect. Unlike monks, priests don't take any vows at all. Um, but the shamla is the distinctive headwear of the unmarried priest, of whom there are very few. I think I am the only one in Australia, and probably one of about two or three in the world. Under Pope Shenouda, the tradition was abolished. Um, not formally, it just became such that unmarried men were not, were not permitted to be ordained. And so a man who wanted to be a priest would have to make a choice at some stage that he would either become a monk and be ordained, or he would get married and be ordained. And he had to make this decision prior to being ordained a deacon, because in Coptic tradition, as in all Orthodox tradition, deacons cannot marry. So once you've been ordained a deacon, you are not permitted to marry. And certainly priests can't. But so you've identified these three forms of headgear, but the scoufier that oh. you're wearing is... Okay. The tradition in modern times, and there are many traditions that have, were introduced by the, the last pope who died recently, Pope Shenouda. Uh, the cops have a habit of saying, this is what the church has done from the beginning. <laughs> Well, it's very easy to show that there's nothing of the sort. So Pope Shenouda required that priests' heads were covered at all times. Not monks. Monks' heads are covered at all times. But he introduced a rule that said all priests' heads must be covered at all times. And so <coughs> there was a Coptic clergy hat which priests would wear outside. Mm. They then took to wearing those inside, and they then took to wearing things like this, which is just more comfortable. But it's certainly not ancient tradition. Photographs from the 19th century showing Coptic priests show them with their heads uncovered, including monks, although it was more common for monks to keep their heads covered. So uh, a few of us will wear these sort of almost as an act of rebellion. Um, most Coptic priests would wear, I haven't brought my hat, it's a round hat, a round hard black hat. 
not the stovepipe worn by Greeks and Russians, but a round hard hat, yeah. uh, which is normally now worn both outdoors and indoors. And it's used in conducting services as well. In not the liturgy, but in, in oh, okay. raising morning and evening incense and other services. But it was interesting. It makes me feel like sometimes the folks in the, the West are slackers because you mentioned that, you know, in order to do a service for a particular day, of course, it begins, you know, in the in the evening. But the, the idea, you know, it, it, at least, you know, where, where I come from and, you know, the meager training I had is that uh, the evening before is the same as the day following. Oh, that's right, yes. Feast-wise, yeah, yes. you know, around the clock. So, I mean, if you... You know, I mean, you could, you know, after after Vespers, you could do a liturgy for a particular feast day um, in the evening, and it would be the exact same thing. But you didn't have to do anything else no, to I do it. You could just do it, and, and and that was it. And certainly, well, I mean, certainly in, in that, that tradition is kind of universal if you look at the Easter Vigil versus, versus yes. Easter Sunday. Um, but uh, I've always found that kind of handy. <laughs> yeah, well, no, in, the, in, in terms the of my schedules, so. Eastern Orthodox churches, there are there are services that have, that are supposed to be held. They're known as vigil services, yeah. which are supposed to be celebrated on the evening prior to the liturgy. Yeah. And there's a morning vigil as well. Yeah. I think, particularly in Western countries, many Orthodox priests appear not to do them, or do them silently. And remember <laughs> that Roman Catholic yeah. priests traditionally were required to read the hours. Yeah. And that they were required. That was not as a prerequisite to the liturgy. That was what they were required to do that daily. Yeah. But they certainly would have done it as a prerequisite to the liturgy. The final particular complication for uh, the new priest is the secret of the fraction. The Coptic bread, as I said to you, is unbroken, untouched, prior to the consecration. At the words of institution, a slight break is made of it. Uh, made in it, that's the words he you know, took, broke. But the bread is broken in the, the fraction in a particularly complex way. The diagram on the top right, sort of, top right, yeah, there's a drawing I did, it's an, an illustration I did to accompany my paper on the right of the fraction, which if you read you'll realise how complicated it is. The bread has to be broken up in a number of ways. But it has to be broken up in such a way that it can be put back together. And it has to be put back together so the priest can hold it and raise it thus high three times in his hand above the pattern. With the constant fear that if you haven't done it correctly, you will raise it and it will simply fall apart. Or a bit will fall out. A bit will fall out, yes. So the fraction, which can really only be taught using bread. So the teacher will sit the, the novice down with a half dozen loaves and watch him break the bread repeatedly and repeatedly. Assuming that the, uh, the, lucky, uh, the lucky novice priest has now worked his way through this, he'll then be instructed <coughs> in the ritual tradition for the other sacraments. Really, this only involves baptism because the sacrament of baptism is particularly complicated. Interestingly enough, the other Coptic, other Coptic sacraments are very, very simple and straightforward. The funeral rite, for example, is incredibly simple. Uh, chrismation or confirmation is very simple. Marriage is not complicated at all. 
The Coptic rite of baptism is particularly difficult. It involves very complex prayers for the consecration of the water, and interestingly enough, after the baptism is completed, prayers for the deconsecration of the water. There are prayers for the water to return to its natural state. The ritual for the consecration of the water done in full would take probably an hour and a half. Many priests, therefore, will do it once, not say the prayer for the return of the water to its natural state, and simply leave the water in the font to be reused, which I must say leads sometimes to water that doesn't strike me as being particularly attractive or healthy. Coptic baptism includes, amongst other things, 36 separate anointings on 36 separate parts of the body. So the priest needs to be able to accurately anoint the child, or the adult in some cases, in, in a sequence of 36 anointings as part of the conclusion of the baptismal ritual. Including both urethras, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, that certainly was entertaining. So once, once uh, all of that's been accomplished, the priest will also then have to, the new priest will then also have to acquire competence in the liturgical year. This is not normally taught as, this is not taught as part of the 40 days, there wouldn't be time enough. But the priest would then normally be expected to spend some time, at least a year, in a parish with a senior, well-instructed priest. Because the Coptic liturgical rites for the seasons are extraordinarily complicated, and there are very substantial volumes, not just for things like Pascha, but for specific days. There is, for example, a ritual known as the Rite of the Apocalypse, which is celebrated on Bright Monday. The ritual volume for that, in English translation, runs to over 300 pages. And the, the liturgy itself would take at least three hours, and involves an extraordinarily complicated series of readings and the lighting of seven weeks in oil with associated prayers. So, presumably, the priest uh, eventually will be able to do all of this well. The Coptic rites for Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Pascha are most extraordinary, extraordinarily beautiful, extraordinarily lengthy, and incredibly complex. And, unfortunately, in many churches now have been seriously simplified both because priests find the complexity of the ritual tedious and because most people won't attend. I seem to remember a Good Friday would normally start at about 6am and would end slightly after midnight, but you would have to be back in church at 6am the following morning for another 12-hour day. Uh, probably <coughs> one of the most challenging ritual experiences of my life, which occurs in the Good Friday service, is where the priests standing in front of the sanctuary prostrate a hundred times. Now, the priest who was my teacher is, was then probably in his 60s, and he had a prayer rope with a hundred beads on it to keep count of the prostrations. And we stood side by side in front of a very large congregation and started prostrating. And he just kept going like that. And I found myself increasingly unable to move. Um, he fortunately slowed down, and I finally did the 100 prostrations, but I was certainly not happy.
happy person at the end of it. <laughs> the new priest would also be expected to be instructed in the Coptic musical tradition. As, uh, now, most priests, by the time they are ordained, would have served in, in the choir in a church and would therefore know something <coughs> of the musical tradition. The Copts, the Coptic, as contrasted to the Arabic musical tradition of the church, has almost been lost. In fact, there are whole slabs of it that have simply disappeared. There are, there are liturgical services for which there is now no known music. A lot of the music in Coptic churches these days is, strictly speaking, not Coptic music, it's Arabic music. And if you listen to it, it is very clearly Arabic. If you have never heard Coptic chanting, you ne wouldn't necessarily recognize the difference. The Coptic chant is quite different to Arabic chant. The musical tradition was almost lost, and it was kept alive into the early 20th century by blind cantors. The tradition was that the men who led the choir in Coptic churches were blind, and learnt the music that way. There were two men, um, two ethnomusicologists, Ernst Newland Smith and Ragved Mufta, who wandered around tape recording the last of the blind cantors. And they reconstructed, as far as they could, the Coptic musical tradition. And it, so it is now possible to hear Coptic chants sung by professional choirs the only musical instruments permitted to be used in the Coptic liturgy are, oddly enough, the cymbals, you can see a, a pair there, and the triangle. I couldn't find a photograph of a triangle. That might sound odd, but some who are well-trained in Coptic music can create absolutely magical sounds with a pair of cymbals and a triangle. Clearly, in times past, the Coptic musical tradition involved other instruments. There are references in ancient texts to all sorts of other instruments being used. But the Coptic position now is the only instruments that have ever been used <coughs> are the cymbals and the triangle. Happy to note they probably skipped that whole guitar folk mass thing, which is probably good. Yes, that's, that's never, terrible. Yes, absolutely never done. No. Right. Though there is evidence that at some stage lyres were used in Coptic instruments, so you would have had stringed instruments, but not right. the sort of kumbaya variety. <laughs> Thank God. Yes. <laughs> now, I appreciate that <coughs> what I've said may have disappointed those who expected more exciting revelations about some secret Coptic tradition. So let me address some of those possible issues. It is often claimed that there is some secret theology taught secretly, particularly in Coptic monasteries in remote places. There's no evidence known to me of any secret Coptic tradition although claims have existed <coughs> and long been promoted. For example, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky claimed that one of her teachers was the otherwise unknown Copt Paulos Metamon. Various odd organisations have claimed to have access to secret teachings from within the Coptic tradition and to have found, sometimes with obscure references to the great catechetical school of Alexandria, the teachings of esoteric Christianity in the deserts of Egypt. Coptic theology has always been extremely conservative. Indeed, it could be said that for many centuries there was no Coptic theology. The church lost its tradition of theologians and theological schools after the Muslim invasion. And so there are whole centuries where there really is no Coptic theological writing at all. 
Even today, the level of theological education required of candidates for ordination could best be described as that of a mid-level Sunday school teacher. There are Coptic theological colleges, but they would not be called Coptic theological colleges by the average, Coptic, the average theological college. In modern times, Coptic theology has been far more influenced by American Protestants than by any other source, including orthodoxy generally. The influence of Protestant missionaries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries have been considerable, particularly under the late Pope Shenouda, who reigned from 1971 to 2012, an extraordinarily long period, an almost fundamentalist Protestant approach has been the norm, and any attempt to express alternative views has been subject to strong opposition. Coptic monasteries are regularly visited by hundreds, if not thousands, of pilgrims. If any unusual, let alone unorthodox, secret teachings were being offered, this would have been quickly known, made known to church authorities and would have been enthusiastically suppressed. There have been some controversies regarding particular theological teachings in some Coptic monasteries, most notably in modern times in relation to the monastery of St. Macarius in the Wadi al-Natrun and the teaching of its late head, Father Mata al-Miskin, better known in the West as Matthew IV. His teachings about some matters, particularly the orthodox doctrine of theosis or divinization, brought him into conflict with Pope Shenouda, and both Pope Shenouda and Metropolitan Bishoy, the secretary of the Synod, published denunciations of Mata al-Miskin although never referring to him by name. They said interesting things like, there is a monk who teaches wrongly. Uh, and everyone knew to whom they were referring. Secondly, the publication of Inter Alia, the Nagamadi text, has led to some claim that perhaps within remote Coptic monasteries a secret Gnostic tradition continued. Again, I've seen no evidence to support this. There certainly are elements of contemporary Coptic theology which might be attributed to some Gnostic influence, notably a sort of dualism or manichaeism, contrasting things spiritual from the world, the flesh and the devil, and a somewhat morbid pseudo-asceticism. This seems much more the product of 19th and early 20th century Protestant influences than anything more ancient. Third, although there was obviously a Coptic folk tradition of magical rituals, relatively recently popularized in ancient Christi Christian magic, Coptic texts of ritual power, a wonderful title. The use of the term Coptic to imply that such traditions had a formal connection with the Coptic Orthodox Church is simply wrong. In the same way that claims, for example, that Sicilian folk traditions are formally associated with the Roman Catholic Church or Greek Orthodox traditions about the evil eye are part of Greek Orthodoxy. They are simply folk traditions. Ancient Christian magic was largely old news. It had been preceded by the work of people like Winifred Blackman in her book The Fallaheen of Egypt in 1927 and Ethel Dryer's Water into Wine in 1956. The extent to which rituals from the Pharaonic era were carried over into Coptic Orthodox tradition and more or less Christianized remains a controversial topic among scholars. There are scholars who have explored aspects of Coptic ritual that appear to be inherited from Pharaonic times, but there is a fierce debate about this. Finally, there have been and there are what might be thought of as secret, as in the sense of now forbidden and therefore not to be discussed, Coptic religious rituals. The three most significant such rituals were prohibited in the reign of the last patriarch, His Holiness Pope Shenouda III. 
They were the right of the lifting of the mat, the right of Abu Tabu, and the right of the jar. And I thought for your, for your entertainment I would talk about these by way of conclusion. The right of the lifting of the mat, now absolutely forbidden, was based on the popular belief that on the 40th day after death, the Archangel Michael weighed the good and bad deeds of the deceased person, after which he or she was assigned to their post-mortem state. The title of the ritual refers to the custom of removing the mats on which the mourners sat. Traditionally in Coptic funerals, people sit on mats, the mourners sit on mats on the floors. After a range of prayers, the priest sprinkled the room which had been occupied by the deceased person with water and sprinkled the house with water and salt. It is said, and my own experience confirms that, that some more devoutly traditionalist Copts will make generous contributions to priests <coughs> still willing to violate the ban on the right for their deceased family members. The right of Abu Tabu is indeed a very curious one and now also banned. It's a Coptic ritual used as a remedy against hydrophobia and is performed before someone who has been bitten by a rabid dog. After various prayers, seven prepubescent boys go round the person for whom the rite is being performed in a ring seven times, chanting. A deacon holds unleavened bread in his mouth, and this is taken by the priest and placed in the lap of the person for whom the rite is being performed. This is repeated with cheese and dates. Each of the seven children then give the priest a piece of unleavened bread, then cheese and dates, on which the person who, for whom the rite is being done is required to breakfast over seven days, drinking wine and water brought from the church. The person is then anointed with apocalypse oil, which has been blessed in the apocalypse service on the night of Good Friday, and will be healed as a result of the prayers of the great saint Abu Tabu. Abu Tabu, curiously enough, is completely unknown in the Coptic Synaxarian, and doesn't actually appear anywhere in Coptic history. He appears to have been conflated with a saint <coughs> Therapon, and this does appear to be something that's a legacy from Pharaonic times. There is indeed a, a single church dedicated to Saint Therapon. This ritual is clearly quite old. The it, manuscripts of it have been found going back to the 19th century, and presumably that suggests it was still being used then. And there certainly are accounts of it being performed in the early 20th century. But as I said, it has um, now, been, now been banned, and it's not permitted to even include a translation of it in the Coptic service book. If any of you fear that you've been bitten by a rabid dog, I have a copy of the ritual. In the late four, and the, finally the right of the jar, which is another peculiar one, now banned. In the late 8th to 14th century, many Copts and converts publicly blasphemed and apostatized in an attempt to secure their execution or martyrdom, as you do. However, Copts also converted in significant numbers to Islam voluntary or voluntarily or under pressure. Some of those who did so later sought to return to the church. A ritual was developed in the ritual of the rite of the jar, which is a quasi-rebaptism, through which such converts were received back into orthodoxy. It's a liturgical procedure involving water to effect a solemn reconciliation 
in the Coptic church of an apostate. And the ritual, interestingly enough, refers to an apostate, whether the, apostate, the apostasy is by denial of the faith or by defilement with a man or a female. That latter phrase is nowhere clearly explained. <coughs> it does not appear in any of the printed liturgical texts or books of the Coptic Orthodox Church, but exists in a few 19th century manuscripts, and so was practiced at least until that period, even though now it is not mentioned at all and is totally forbidden. The Coptic Orthodox Church provides, albeit in tragically diminishing form, a rare opportunity to see a living manifestation of some of the secret traditions of earliest Christianity. Within the Church itself, there is very sadly not the slightest interest in the history and development of its liturgy, and the subject is of such obscurity that few outside the Coptic Church have shown any interest or the diligence necessary to pursue the subject. The full, complex, complicated ritual tradition of the Coptic liturgy and the secret tradition is slowly fading into obscurity as fewer and fewer teachers remain who can properly teach it and fewer and fewer young priests appear who have any interest in learning it. Thank you.